I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. If you've been stuck indoors with dreary old winter, rain and wind and snow and everything else, isn't it lovely when you can go outdoors in the garden and there's these little daffodils that are poking their heads up? It cheers you up. Ron Scamp is a renowned daffodil grower from the Cornish countryside. So good, in fact, he was recently showcased as an RHS master grower, meaning his nursery goes above and beyond the call of duty to provide some of the best and most interesting plants out there. Scamp's daffodils grow an enormous range from old favourites to new and rare varieties. To walk around your garden, seeing them growing in the garden or even in containers can be quite nice. Well, it's a delight. He's not the only daft lover in attendance today. I too love these yellow-headed harbingers of spring. I remember the first time I grew them at RHS Wisley. I really learned a lot there. We had a collection, an amazing collection, of all sorts of daffodils from the very earliest to modern ones bred at the Cornish Experimental Station of Rosewarn, now sadly closed. The most important thing I learnt was to take care of your daffodils. All too often we shove them in the ground and forget about them and then buy some more. Well, that's all very well and good, but if you dig them up every three years, discard the titchy ones and replant the best bulbs, you can keep them going and looking good for years and years and years. They're such a special plant for so many of us. I'm Guy Barter and this is Gardening with the RHS. In today's show, we're going to celebrate one of my favourite plants, this bringer of joy, Narcissus, as daffodils are known in Latin. This name is thought to come from ancient Greek mythology. Narcissus was a hunter who was known for his beauty, but also had a bit of an ego. A wood nymph spotted him relaxing by a stream and instantly fell in love with him. However, Narcissus was so busy being completely self-absorbed that he ignored the nymph. Scorned by his rejection, she placed a curse on him that made him fall in love with his own reflection in a pool of water. He ended up being so infatuated with himself that he forgot to eat and sleep, later died, and in his place sprouted a flower bearing his name, the Narcissus. A lesson to us all. Myths aside... Later in the show, we'll hear how a chemical from the humble daffodil helps fight Alzheimer's and how one man helped to save the whole daffodil-growing industry from extinction. But first, let's head back to Ron for his homage to these bright sunny plants. 
My first introduction to daffodils was as a child when I lived for a time on my uncle, my godfather as well, on his farm in the Tamer Valley where they grew daffodils. And of course, as children, you had to do your chores and picking daffodils. And I used to love to pick the daffodils and I loved to go into the packing shed. Since then, I've always grown daffodils of one sort or another at home and in our own gardens. So it's partially in my blood. I started showing daffodils at uh, the Falmer Spring Flower Show, which would be probably 55 years ago, no, 50 years ago in any case, that was showing the nice varieties that I was growing in the garden. Once you start winning a few prizes, you are inclined to get a bit hooked. It's like fishing. You catch one fish, you want to catch another, don't you? The wild daffodils, where do they grow? There is wild daffodils in Great Britain. You've got the Tembi daffodil, which is Narcissus obvularis, which is the Welsh Tembi daffodil. It's not widely seen in the wild today, but there is some in, around Tembi and the Pembroke Peninsula. There's the Pseudo-Narcissus growing in the Lake District. That is grown not widely, but it's found in many, many, many parts of England. That's the standard, we call them the Lent Lily, if you like. That's the popular name, or it used to be. But that's the Pseudo-Narcissus. But then all of the other types of wild daffodil, and this could be the Pseudo-Narcissus, the Bulbacodiums, the Triandrus, the Jonquillas, the Poeticus, the Tazettas, and there's all sorts of variants to these. And they're found practically everything in Spain, in some place or other. And, of course, there's a lot found in Portugal. There's a lot found in the mountainous regions of France, well, many parts of France. There's the Jonquilla and the Tazettas and the Pseudo-Narcissus. The Pseudo-Narcissus lobularis comes from the Loire Valley. That's through France. But they're all found in the temperate regions of Europe. There's very little found north because it's too cold, I think, there. But all parts of northern Europe, you will find wild daffodils growing in the mountains and the meadows and that. And um, you've also got Tazetta and some of the hoop petticoats, the Bulbacodiums, Cantabricus types, are growing in northern Africa, in the Atlas Mountains there. The wild pseudo-narcissus daffodil has got a little bit like an earthy sort of scent and the yellow daffodils in the markets have an earthy sort of thing, but mostly they don't have any dominant perfume or scent. The scented ones are a result of breeding with Narcissus jonquilla because jonquilla is very, very scented, very, very strong. It's also with the um, Poeticus because those are very, very scented. They're sweetly scented, the pheasant eyes. The Tazetta types, which grow in the warmer regions of Europe, this is uh, along the Mediterranean coast and North Africa and further east, those are multi-headed. They're quite long stems, most of them. Very, very um, scented and extremely strong to those. There's little tiny jonquillas that are scented, but most of the wild ones have a little bit of scent that is transmitted to their hybrids. 
The other wild ones, Bulbacodiums, as far as I'm aware, don't have any scent at all or very little. For something for people to plant in their garden, that they are successful, they're easy to grow, minimum care, so long as you don't abuse them. You plant them in a well-drained but moisture-retentive soil. In the trumpet kinds, there's things like early sensation which flowers at Christmas time in Cornwall. It'll certainly flower in January, further up in England and Wales and that. Flowers nicely in Scotland, but that won't be for a week or two. That's early sensation, Rhinevale's early sensation. There's another one, Cornish King, which is a white and yellow big trumpet. I'm giving you the ones now with awards of garden merit. Jetfire, that's a yellow and orange. February Gold, I always say that's indestructible. It's a super thing. There's Rapture, a more modern one. Probably the best of its kind was Sweatback Petals. In the other scented ones, Rosemore Gold. And then there's Pippet. In the miniature ones... You've got Baby Moon, that's a John Quiller type, sweetly scented. There's Minor Nanus, which is a little tiny thing, only three or four inches high. They are all my favourites. They're all my babies, aren't they? But the ones that I've named so far, if someone said to me, I want a selection of daffodils that is going to give me a good show over a reasonable length of time and variety... Those that I've just named to you are as good as you'll ever get. When you're raising daffodils or breeding daffodils, the excitement of something new that is coming into flower, the excitement of having something new in your garden, the diversity of them. They're not all just yellow trumpets. They are quite variable. There's lots of different types. What I can only say is that once you like the daffodil and you've grown them and enjoyed them, you don't want to stop growing them. Now, growers like Ron Scamp might not even exist if it wasn't for James Kirkham Ramsbottom. Daffodil lovers owe a huge amount to this botanist from Bradford, as my fellow podcast host and history lover, Fiona Davison, explains. So the magnificently named James Kirkham Ramsbottom... He trained as a student in the RHS garden at Wisley, one of the first to do so. He trained from 1911 to 1913 and he was top student, came top in the exams. But that's not why we should remember him. We should remember James Kirkham Ramsbottom because he was the man who saved the daffodil. So James Kirkham Ramsbottom finished training and he went and got a job as a garden journalist at the Gardener's Magazine. But by 1915, the call came out that daffodil growers were very worried about a mystery disease that was rotting off all of their bulb collections. And this rot, they thought, was a fungal infection. Um, and they tried every fungicide under the sun. But it continued to just rip through all of the daffodil fields. So it, it was killing old and rare varieties in collections. It was killing brand newly developed varieties and daffodil growers, commercial and private daffodil growers were really worried they were just going to lose all their stocks. Nothing seemed to be immune from this disease that caused the bulbs and the plants to just rot away. And James Kirkham Ramsbottom dropped his journalism career and came back to Wisley to become a researcher to look into this you know, impending problem. 
And he started in 1915 and he worked in the old laboratory at Wisley, which is the building that people who visit Wisley will know about and recognise. It's kind of like a Tudor-looking, Elizabethan-looking building, but it was actually cutting-edge laboratory. And what's amazing is he discovered it wasn't a fungus that was infecting the bulbs. It was actually a little worm, a little eel worm, that was eating into the bulb and making it weak and then and rotting off. And he worked out even better how to kill it. And that involved just simply soaking the bulbs in hot enough water for long enough. He worked out exactly the right temperature for how long to soak them. And it overnight transformed everything. Word got out, all the bulb growers started, you know, boiling the bulbs. And he was awarded the Bar Memorial Trophy for saving the daffodil in 1924. The RHS was so pleased they put a little plaque up to him in the foyer of the old laboratory and kept his copper boiler. And we found his, the boiler in the attic at the laboratory not so long ago. He was hugely fated in his day because, you know, he'd saved an entire plant group. But tragically, he went to was sent to America, to New York, to do a lecture tour to explain how he'd saved the daffodil in 1925. And tragically, he had an accident. He fell from the hotel window somehow and died so it died only at the age of 34 really sadly this story of how this one man uncovered and solved a problem that the whole industry had been grappling with for years has now largely been forgotten i think it's really interesting as well because at the moment, with climate change and with kind of globalisation, the, the huge amount of movement of plant material that goes on across the world, we're facing, you know, similar threats. Plant diseases coming in and potentially, you know, wiping out or really threatening whole plant collections. And you are still reliant on scientists to kind of try and figure out and work out how to stall or halt or destroy kind of threats to plants or, or develop resistant varieties. Still, that battle goes on. I think this tells us the vulnerability of plants that we can take for granted, that if they do get hit by a disease, you're reliant on plant science to save them. We're also reliant on having biodiversity within our cultivated plant groups. You know, if you have lots and lots of varieties kept in cultivation or kept in special collections, you know, where they can be protected, you've got a much better chance of breeding or, or choosing resistant varieties to withstand threats from pest diseases, climate change. So I think that as much as James Kirkham Ramsbottom's story is one of individual brilliance, it's also a story of the importance of protecting collections and keeping that diversity going. Fiona's been hard at work on all things daffodil recently too, as the library is launching an online exhibition called A Host of Golden Daffodils. In it, you'll be able to learn how they've inspired centuries of art and poetry and advanced medical science, something we'll talk about in more detail shortly. The exhibition will be available as an exclusive preview for RHS members from today until the 11th of March, when it opens for everyone. Just head to rhs.org.uk forward slash digital dash collections for more information.
It's time to get our hands in the soil now. We all know that daffodils grow from bulbs, but there are other spring and summer flowering plants that grow from corms or tubers. So what's the difference between them all? RHS gardening advisor Charlotte Sweeney is here to help. All three of these are examples of underground storage organs and they're often used interchangeably. So it's quite normal for garden centres to describe all of them as bulbs. But they actually are different and the main way that they differ is in their botanical structure. So a bulb, a true bulb, is particularly obvious if you looked inside, if you cut it in half. And the thing that you'll notice is that it's layered like an onion with lots of fleshy leaf scales, which is where the food is stored. Most bulbs have a protective covering on the outside, which is kind of like dry, flaky scales. And they have a basal plate, which is a little circular bit of material at the bottom where the roots grow from. Most bulbs are pointed or rounded and they produce offsets, which are small, identical bulbs. And these can be separated to increase the amount that you have. Most common examples are things like daffodils, tulips, hyacinths and lilies. A corm, on the other hand, is a compact, flattened stem base. And if you cut through a corm, you wouldn't see scales like you would with a bulb. You'd see a really solid internal structure, just a real mass of food in there. It does have a basal plate like bulbs do. It does have a protective covering and it does have one or more growing points at the top. Corms are renewed annually, so after the growth in the summer, your corm dries up like a little prune and then it produces a new one for the following year. They also produce offsets, which are known as cormals, and these can also be separated to give you some more. Most common examples are things like gladioli, freesia and crocus. Then you've got tubers, and these are really the very different ones. So tubers don't have the basal plate where the roots come from. They don't have a protective covering. They don't produce offsets. And if you cut into them, you'd see no particularly special structure inside. They're really a modified underground stem or root. You can have tuberous roots and tuberous stems. And they have several growing points along them and they're called eyes. The really common one you'll see is dahlias, but other examples include potatoes, daylilies and tuberous begonias. Although these might be different botanically, in terms of looking after them in the garden, there's really not much you need to do differently. So all three of them are normally propagated at the same time. Depending on the flowering season, they would be planted at the same time. So you would plant daffodils and crocus at the same time, for example, even though one's a bulb and one is a corm. And most of them produce that foliage in the summer, which will die down with the frost and rot down in, with the winter but no need to do anything massively different between the three. We'll join Charlotte again in a future episode for more botanical jargon busting. Now, we couldn't let the show end without visiting the land of a daffodil, Wales, to meet a company that's using them in a rather unexpected way. Agroceutical Products Limited is based in the Welsh mountains, and grows varieties selected for their production of a substance called galanthamine. This chemical is then used medically to help against the impact of Alzheimer's. Kevin Stevens is the managing director, and I spoke to him to understand how it all works. The very first record we have found of galanthamine 
was in the Iliad, where Ulysses had to go and find the white flower with the black roots to help bring his sailors back to their senses. And the general consensus with that is it was a plant called Galanthus, which is why Galanthamine got its name. But Galanthus is actually a snowdrop. But a snowdrop, as you can imagine, has got a growing aspect of a few inches, whereas a daffodil is 10, 15, 18 inches. It's a much easier plant to grow. Our story started with a retired professor. Professor Trevor Walker had retired to Mid Wales and he had a phone call from a friend to say that the friend's wife had been diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's. And the conversation went much the way these things always do. Oh gosh, that's awful. Somebody should do something. But to his eternal credit, Professor Walker decided that he was going to be that somebody. And he spent several years looking at natural products and compounds that could affect the brain mechanisms. The result of that research was he discovered what he called the Black Mountains effect, which is that daffodils grown at altitude in the Black Mountains of Wales produce a lot more galanthamine than daffodils grown in more traditional areas. So galanthamine is a alkaloid compound that has been approved and licensed as a prescription Alzheimer's treatment. And the way it works is that galanthamine causes an enzyme imbalance in the brain, but it is the opposite enzyme imbalance to the one associated with Alzheimer's disease. So if the dosage is right, the two imbalances balance out, restore equilibrium to the brain and slow down or stop the progression of Alzheimer's disease that we're all familiar with. There is a strong correlation between growing daffodils at altitude in the Welsh mountains, but it isn't altitude in itself. There are a whole basket of factors that come along with growing on the top of a Welsh mountain. Temperature, stress, exposure, macronutrients, micronutrients. As far as we can tell, it is a combination of all of those factors that give rise to the increased galanthamine levels rather than just any one factor in isolation. There's a, a theory that daffodils produce galanthamine and the other alkaloids as a defense mechanism against grazing livestock, a bit like a stingy nettle. And the theory goes that by growing our daffodils in difficult growing situations, we are providing that stress challenge to the plant, and that therefore gives rise to higher levels of glanthamine than would be found in somewhere more pleasant. In addition to identifying the Black Mountains effect, Professor Walker spent quite a while researching daffodil varieties, and of the 30,000 or so varieties of daffodils he identified, he only found a handful of varieties with the right genetics to produce galanthamine and that work in this environment to produce that effect. 
And interestingly, it seems to be older varieties. Professor Walker's theory was that in the wild, daffodils evolved this alkaloid protection. But as we have selectively bred daffodils for different colours, longer vase life, not falling over so easily, we've bred out the wild genes that instigate this alkaloid effect. The really interesting part about daffodils in particular is that they produce a whole cocktail of these bioactive alkaloids. There are researchers currently looking at anti-cancer properties, antiviral properties, all from what we consider to be a very common plant in this country. The whole concept started off with a phone call to Professor Walker and his friend's wife having been diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's. She was fortunate in that she was diagnosed early, provided with galanthamine early, and had excellent care and attention from her specialist. And she sadly has passed away now, but she had nearly 12 years with her family, with the progression slowed very significantly. So of those 12 years, there was probably nine or ten where she was able to actually be with her family, present in the moment, know who they were, and that time is precious. You can't put a price on that. As diseases go, the impact of Alzheimer's isn't just the, the patient themselves, but there is an impact on the people around them, the people who care for them. It's a very difficult experience to watch your loved one being taken away a little each day. So anything that we can do to provide the family with that time and preserve that time together for as long as we can has got to be a good thing. Kevin Stevens. Fantastic to hear about his work. It just makes me think how magical daffodils are. And that brings us to the end of this week's show. If you want to learn more about daffodils, visit the links at rhs.org.uk forward slash podcast or look at our show notes. But until next time, it's goodbye from me, Guy Barter. Apparently, if you're the first one to spot a daffodil in your area, it means you'll get far more gold and silver into your home over the coming year. So I'm off to keep a keen eye out for those yellow nodding heads. Wish me luck. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Crest robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Crest robotic lawn mower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilise the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step, and you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer, or visit cress.com.
Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.